Uh, Sherilyn's not here, but I actually want to steal those words that she said, bro, uh, um, um, borrowed prayers. I love that concept. We're going to do some borrowed prayers um, this morning in the message as well. Um, but sometimes we find ourselves in situations um, in life that we've created for ourselves, or someone created for us, or that's life. And when we find ourselves there, we find the world closing in around us. We then respond in those moments. And it's, look, I want to look at one of these responses from a person. And how does this person, and the guy's name is David. How does David respond when he finds himself in a situation that partly was doing of his own doing, partly doing of other people? But how does he respond? And we're going to start as an onlooker. Looking into Psalm 63, we're going to start as an onlooker looking into David's life, but you'll really very soon realize we're actually going to join David in that place that he finds himself to see what it is that we can learn, what it is that we can reflect on so that we can understand what is happening and our response in the future can be shaped and changed. We're going to participate in David's suffering his declaration, and in his rejoicing. Yep. Maybe if I switched it on, it would work. So when we think about Psalm 63, which is what I'm going to be sharing about today, and that's a picture of the Judean wilderness or the Judean desert, scholars write that Psalm 63 is held in, high, in a high place in the history of Christianity. As a psalm of David, it is traditionally attributed to being written in that place. So David finds himself in that harsh environment, and it's there that he writes what we're about to read. David is there because those loyal to him, his son and some of his trusted friends and followers, actually rebel and cause him to flee. You can, you can read all about this in 2 Samuel chapter 15 to 18, and his son Absalom. And, and what you find is David actually, just pricing a couple of passages for you, David fails to defend his daughter Tamar, uh, who is the sister of Absalom. Absalom is upset with, that, with David's lack of fathering, and as such, plots a revenge against his father. Even David's friend, his royal counselor, who is both trusted and highly intelligent, defects to Absalom's side. Absalom rallies all these supporters and David is forced from Jerusalem. And this royal counselor, this once friend, trusted friend of David, provides counsel to Absalom to literally, and you can read the scripture because it will explain to you what this word means, dominate David's palace, right, including on the rooftop. So literally going to the top of the, the palace and taking control. The counselor advises Absalom to strike hard and fast before David has a chance to regroup. And this is where I want to leave the story because we kind of want the release, but we know what happens. David finds his way back in through the desert and through the Jordan, and he finds himself back in Jerusalem, back as king. But I want us to actually think about this wilderness episode 
David finds himself for a short amount of time in the northeastern portion of the wilderness of Judea, of Judah, before he crossed over to the Jordan to the safety and the return to Jerusalem. In this forsaken and depressing landscape, he's fleeing for his life. He is dealing with disappointment, betrayal at the hands of his family and his friends. And it is here that he writes Psalm 63. It's in that environment. The preacher of Constantinople, John Chrysostom, in 347, who lived 347 to 407, writes, It was decreed and ordained by primitive fathers that no day should pass without the public singing of the psalm. A commentator writes in the Apostolic Constitution, Book 7, called, he calls for the singing of Psalm 63 at the beginning of each Sunday service and referred to it simply as the morning hymn. Researchers note that there are many references to it in both commentaries of both ancient and modern and in the liturgical offerings throughout Christian history, particularly in monastic services. One researcher says, simply put, The words of David, noting our need to seek God, depend on his provision, and trust in his care, have continually been on the lips of worshippers and the pages of Christianity since at least the third century. So when you and I step into Psalm 63, we're stepping into a historical account. And I want to take you and me on a journey. I want us to be a bit immersive. I want to use borrowed prayers. I want to use borrowed songs and have us sit, not now as an onlooker into history, but participating with David in this moment. I am aware that sitting in this room, I put my hand up first, are people that have suffered, that have been on the end of receiving betrayal by family and by friends, people who have found themselves in a place of wilderness, in a dry and weary place, people that have found themselves at the end of themselves, no longer welcome where they once were. So I know that I'm amongst friends. I, I love what, what, what you shared earlier about this, this, this confession bringing us to remembrance that not one of us, actually except for Josh, have it all together. That we all have periods of wilderness. And so how is it that we respond when we find ourselves, like David, betrayed and in a dry and weary place? St. Augustine writes in his commentary on Psalm 63 that Judea for us is our everyday our normal life. And I I love it. As he actually starts to explain, he says, when you read that David was in the wilderness, just understand that David was in every normal day. He was in normal life. And it's the same for us. We're all, when you read it, we're so, when you look at the picture of the desert, we find ourselves removed. We find ourselves removed, but we've, from from David's situation, but we've got to learn to be with him, to find ourselves there. I think a guy by the name of Gadamer or Thistleton talk about two horizons. We've got to actually have the horizons of what was happening with David, his picture of what was happening and our picture of life actually collide and align. And so Augustine puts it so clearly, it's when you think of the wilderness, it's your and my everyday living. So it should not be a stretch for you and me to imagine that we are 
there in that desert with David and that we've been on the run with him, that we're exhausted, worn out, dusty, dry and itchy eyes, dry throat. It is there that we stop. It is there that we stop to catch our breath. And it is there, somewhere in that desert, sharing the feeling of lament, sitting there in the desert. And David takes an instrument and he sings this song. don't want to say anything in this moment and ruin it but there David is in that desert singing that song I know the words are probably a little small on the screen but I want to read Psalm 63 verses 1 to 8 and I'm going to use the passion translation O God of my life I'm lovesick for you in this weary wilderness. I thirst with the deepest longings to love you more. With cravings in my heart that can't be described, such yearning grips my soul for you, my God. I am energized every time I enter your heavenly sanctuary to seek more of your power and drink in more of your glory. 
For your tender mercies mean more to me than life itself. How I love and praise you, God. Daily I will worship you passionately with all my heart. My arms will wave to you like banners of praise. I overflow with praise when I come before you. For the anointing of your presence satisfies me like nothing else. You are such a rich banquet of pleasure to my soul. I lie awake each night thinking of you and reflecting on how you help me like a father. I sing through the night under your splendor shadow, offering up to you songs of delight and joy. With passion, I pursue and cling to you because I feel your grip on my life. I keep my soul close to your heart. Thank you for your word, Lord. I love the way that it is written and invokes this response. David finds himself in a place and he responds with words and a song that give glory to God. When we find ourselves in life in a place, how is it we respond? Uh, when Charlie started to, to, to share the little story of the uh, peace lily and then started to talk about it, I'm going, if she doesn't shut up soon, she's going to preach the whole message and that's the end and then we're done. So we can go home early or hang out and have coffee. coffee. <clears throat> but how is it that we respond when we find ourselves in, in these places? So I want to share a little bit around my story, a part of my story that connects with Psalm 63 and maybe in some way connects with your story. I grew up in a very dysfunctional home and I was loved by my mother. And I'm sure my father loved me as best he could, but I could just never get his approval. I was teased by my brother, teased at school, ridiculed by my father. And since as long as I can remember, even amidst that, I had this deep sense of spirituality, this deep sense of who God was. I wasn't, under, I wasn't saved, but I understood something about God, Abba Father, my Father, in my situation. I grew up in a Catholic apostolic type faith <clears throat> and I grew up with a love for scripture and the knowledge of God. And I remember my 13th birthday, 6th of December, 1980. I had this God moment where things were falling apart in my family and being the eldest, wanting to try and protect my brother and my sister who was seven years younger than me. And I cried out to God from my room. Amidst that dysfunction, with all that internal pain and loneliness, this feeling of betrayal by my father or even by my mother, by my brother, I cried out. And it was in that moment that I felt God respond to me. And he responded to me, I just had my Bible. And I opened it. And what he responded has become my life psalm since the age of 13. 
And this is what I cried out that night, knowing God without having a personal relationship, an active relationship as we see salvation today. And it connects to last week's sermon. God, you are my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? You are the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked, even mine enemies and my foes, come upon me to eat my flesh, they stumble and fall. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war should rise against me, in this will I be confident. What thing have I desired of you, God? That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For in my time of trouble, you will hide me in your pavilion. In the secret of your tabernacle, you will hide me. You will set me upon a rock. And now... Shall my head be lifted above my enemies, around about me? Therefore, will I offer in your tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises unto you, Lord. That night, I felt God touch my heart. And I cried out a prayer prayed a prayer that I would have no idea would shape and change my life. A prayer that would take 19 years to be answered. Time doesn't go, allow me today to fill in the gaps between 1980 and when we immigrated in August from South Africa in 1995. There's, a, there's too much that happens there. But this part of my testimony, I was active in a faith group. We immigrated in, in late 1995. I was working in a computer hardware and software industry. I was traveling all around Australia, all around the world. But where we belonged, I could not find a place to worship. I could not integrate into that faith community even though it was the same denomination because of the mindset and the senior leader didn't like South Africans he saw us as arrogant I wonder why the result is I stopped going to church Cheryl and I were experiencing some tense moments I feel our marriage had become stale at that point. Our faith, my faith, was dry. I found myself in a dry and weary place. And all I had to hold on to was Psalm 27 because there was nothing left there. Cheryl's parents were saved and they had been praying for me to be saved. I don't know how long, my whole, our whole life. I've known Cheryl since I was 10. But I remember in August 1999, there was a women's camp in Toowoomba. And we were living in Brisbane and the church that Cheryl's mum belonged to were going up and Cheryl said she was going. 
And she said she needed it. And it's like, well, cool, if you need it, then you go. I'm South African, arrogant. It's never my fault. I'm like, Joshua, I don't need this message. Everyone else does. <laughs> but I remember Cheryl being dry and wanting more and having had an active relationship with Christ, wanting to have that again. She'd been in that desert place. And she went. Never underestimate the prayers of mothers and women in a room praying for their husbands or their children. But when she went, I actually said to her, you can go, but don't bring any of that happy clappy stuff back with you. Don't bring any of it back. Uh, at that stage, I, this, this was a happy clappy church and you all rolled and fell all over the place and you were demonic and I didn't even think that you actually loved Jesus. Look with God's irony and God's humor. I said, don't bring any of that stuff back. That music is demonic, it's drums, it's all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. <laughs> and then I was driving, I worked at the Gold Coast, and I was driving to work this one day, and Cheryl came back and she was alive. There was something in her that had changed. Something shifted that weekend in August. And I noticed it, but I was too full of me to tell her too full of me to ask I was dry and weary but I wouldn't reach out I wouldn't declare God in his rightful place and one day writing I still call it the glove compartment it's where ladies used to put their gloves but that little box in front of the passenger seat the glove compartment inside there I reached in to get a cassette 1999, we are talking 1999, and put this cassette into the player. And uh, it was still one of those players that you could actually see the timing and then make sure you rewind it anyway. So I started to play. And I'd grown up believing that Baroque-style music is the, is the only music played in heaven. Everything else is demonic. And so I found myself there listening and going, but it's scripture, it's Maranatha music, still around today. Maranatha music, who remembers Maranatha music? Uh, well, Maranatha, only a handful of people want to admit that. Uh, Maranatha music, actually, and I went, it's scripture to, 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 to song or to music. How bad can it be? And I don't know whether it was my curiosity or whether it was God. But I decided to play the cassette I had it in my hand, the window rolled down, and I was going to throw it out. And go, I warned her, and I'm going to throw it out. But something said, play it. Curiosity, or the Holy Spirit knowing me because God created me. And I put this cassette in. And the song that played was As the Deer pants for the water so my soul longeth after thee we're just going to sing it as the deer pants for the water so my soul longeth after thee you And I sang that song for three months. I kept singing it. 
taking the tape out, putting it in when I was driving in the car, then winding it back so Cheryl wouldn't know I've listened and putting it back. And I sang it month after month. As a deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. Three months, and on the 10th of October 1999, I gave my heart to Christ at an evening service at what it was Garden City Christian Church, as Darren Biedman shared his testimony. I literally sang my salvation. I was crying out to God. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was dry and in a weary place. I wanted to connect with that 13-year-old boy who wanted nothing more than to dwell in the house of the Lord, gaze upon his beauty, and inquire of him. My constant theme from a young boy, a dependence upon God and acknowledging only Him as my life-giving source, the only one to quench my thirst, my absolute desire for intimacy with Him. It would take 19 years for me to rest in the fulfillment of that cry. Amidst all the stuff, I could declare God's all-sufficiency in my life. So as we delve into Psalm 63 a little closer now, we see this so plainly in David's life, and it confronts you and me today with the same reality in our life. It reminds us how we ought to live the Christian life, the more abundant life Jesus spoke about and promised for each and every one of us, all who acknowledge him. And so we find ourselves now in Psalm 63, looking at the scriptures. And as I read the Passion Translation and, and was looking at what we're doing, I found these words that just stood out to me. And I'm gonna, there's seven of them. And I'm going to cover these seven words in the time that we have left. And I want us to remember, because quite often as Christians, what we do is we see the Bible and we look for a pattern. And we go, if I just do these seven things, then everything's going to be okay. Well, if you follow David's life, it's not okay, but he stays in the same disposition. If you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to be sold out for, for Christ, to understand the completed work of the cross. It doesn't mean it's a life free of suffering. It means it's a life filled with an acknowledgement of who God is, Jesus is, the Holy Spirit is, His Word is, Christian community is, and through it all we find a way through our suffering so that we, at the end or in our desert place, can declare like David declared here in Psalm 63. 
One writer states that Psalm 63 as a Lenten text is a clear call to reflection for the person who has come into the clear realization that faith in God is a dependent relationship where God is stable and dependable. The dependable one, and that we are utterly dependent on God in our relationship for him, for life itself, from conversion to death, through good times and bads, bad times. So as we celebrate Lent, we reflect on our relationship with God. And this psalm actually does that. It causes you and I to reflect on our relationship with God. Because David does give us an example of how we ought respond in the wilderness. Moments of our lives. And then it causes us to then repent. And say, God, I'm sorry. That's what when, when, when Sherilyn shared and had us read that, I'm going, God, you've stitched us all up today. Because you're making us be honest and transparent up front. That we don't all behave like David behaved in Psalm 63 and that we have to learn how to behave that way. So that's the first thing the psalm does. The second thing is it will revitalize your prayer life, my prayer life, and our intimacy with God who is the source of all our joy, provision, and blessing. So when you look at this Bible verse, there are seven do yous. Do you thirst? Do you drink? Do you come? Do you overflow? Do you pursue? And do you keep? And the first one is, do you thirst? Do, do you and I thirst after God? When David writes, and he actually says in the psalm, I thirst with the deepest longings to love you more. Is that our position? Is that our disposition? Is that our attitude that we actually from within us? If you've ever been that thirsty that you've walked or run and when I was in the police in South Africa you'd walk 40 k's without water and then you'd get to the end and it's like you literally want to lie under the tap and have the water run over your head to cool your brain down at the same time you want water in your mouth to cool the inside you want the outside cool and you want the inside cool from deep within us there's something that thirsts that cries out not a consumerism type of thirst not one that says well I need this so that I can be healthy or fat or whatever. I want to consume, consume, consume. But one that comes from a longing deep within us that says, I thirst after you, God. David, when he lays in that bed in that moment, cries out and he says, God, I thirst after you from deep within me. Deep within me. When we cry out after God, does it come from deep within us? That's the thirst that David speaks about there. Yes, he's thirsty because he's in a desert, but I'm positive he would have had water with him. He wasn't dying of dehydration. David didn't take the Ark of the Covenant with him when he left the city, which he could have. He left it in the city. He was thirsty for God. If we get that thirsty for God, Augustine writes, he says, he actually says that if we acknowledge our thirst of God, then we also acknowledge our drinking in of God. 
So not only am I thirsty, he writes, he says, I'm energized, seek your power, and I drink in more of your glory. Literally says, God, I am so thirsty for you. I absorb everything of your glory, every part of you. So yes, we do find ourselves in the wilderness. Yes, we do find ourselves alienated. We do find ourselves betrayed. But in these moments that we find ourselves there, our first response should be, God, I thirst after you. Not for what it can benefit for me, but God, I am thirsty for you just because of who you are. And because I'm thirsty, I am ready to drink in all of you. If you read verse 3, the prayer that he prays, which was the first slide, and the slide, well, yeah, the first slide. He, David writes that the theme is praising God's great love, and the Hebrew words has said, and it, it actually says, better than life. That I love you better than life. The heaviest, it is the heaviest word. Has said is a, a definition of the decision of God to serve and love us. And it's the heaviest of God's attributes. Heavy meaning the weightiest. God says, hey, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. In other words, God's going like, there's a tap open here in heaven, and it's gushing for you. God says, my love and my need to serve and my, my want to fill you is open. And you've just got to go, I'm thirsty. And then you've got to go, I drink and I drink and I drink. The prayer reminds us that it is, is, that it is better than life because it transcends life. It, it was there at the beginning when God's love proved stronger than God's anger in the garden. It continued to the cross and beyond, and is, it is what will welcome us home into the arms of God at our earthly death. This thought of said. And because God is that, and it's the weightiest of what he does, we drink it in. So the question is, are you thirsty? Not for a cup of tea, not for some water, but are we thirsty for God? Do we want more of Him? If you're going to survive the wilderness, you're going to be, need to be thirsty. But then not thirsty. Thirsty and drink. Fill ourselves with God. I thirst. I drink. The third one is I come. He says, I overflow with praise when I come before you, for the anointing of your presence satisfies me like nothing else. I come comes before I overflow. Being in his presence, soaked We've got two grandkids. We take them swimming. And when we take our grandkids swimming, you kind of sometimes, the, they'll swim. Young people don't feel cold like we do. And you'll take them to the pool and they'll hop in the pool. And it's, come on, Opa, I get in the pool. And I don't swim unless it's bathwater temperature very easily. And I've already swam more past the use-by date of a swimming pool. But it's like, come on, Opa, I get in. You can't. And I said, well, I am in. Like, I am in to my knees. He goes, no, no, you're not in. You've got to come all the way in. You've got to put your head under the water. And it's like, I don't have hairs. This thing's going to freeze. 
if I put my head under the water and, and every other part of my body is going to freeze. So to him, swimming is actually being in the pool and under the water, being soaked. If you get out of the water and you're sopping wet, even if your lips are blue and you're shivering, that is getting in. That is being soaked. And when we think about this, this thought of I come before you because your anointing, the anointing of your presence satisfies me like nothing else. That's it. I am thirsty and I choose to drink until I am soaked. So here's David finding himself in the wilderness, and this is how he starts his cry out to God. This is how he starts his prayer. I'm thirsty. I will drink, and I will drink until I'm soaked. I could just stop there. That's a lesson for all of us, just to do those. It may be just me. Maybe, maybe this is for me today, not for you. I could just stop there and go, hey, look, God, some days I, I just am so full of everything else, including myself that I'm not thirsty. Or I just want to stand till my knees get wet because I don't want to really experience the fullness of being immersed in you because it might make me shiver and shake. And this is David's disposition, not a pattern on how to survive the wilderness, but an attitude that we can reflect upon and start to build into our lives. The fourth thing he says is, because I thirst, because I drink, because I come soaked in your presence, I then overflow. Uh, when we talk about offering old offering messages, they talk about, you know, when, you, when you're, you're given back to you, pushed down, filled up, pushed down, uh, I've even forgotten the words, uh, and overflowing. And there was the concept as I was reading this is that David has so much of God in him, pushed down, shoved down, that it's got nowhere else to go but over and out. And so the song that we shared in, the song that we actually listened to of Psalm 63, that, that's what comes out of David is praise. And what comes out of David is an acknowledgement of who God is, who God is in the wilderness. He's not lying there in the bed wondering if God's going to rescue him. He's lying there in the bed with wonder of God, knowing he's rescued him. And that's what needs to happen for you and I. That's the, the, the take-home after reflecting here. I, I thirst, I drink, I come, I overflow. The fifth one is I sing. And the Hebrew word is shabak. It's actually a praise posture. And it includes the thought of being still and to soothe. Now, it's almost an oxymoron. From a position of peace, I commend and praise out loud. It actually says it's praising him in a loud voice, but it's done from a position of being calm. Not desperation running into battle where we scream and yell and shout just so that we can give ourselves the edge or to intimidate, it says, I'm yelling out because I have peace within me. I am declaring something to God about him. If I had to say, let's all give God a loud shout now, what would that sound like? If I went next door, just to these guys, who I've had the privilege of spending time in that room, last year with those kids and I said let's do a praise let's 
Let's shabak a loud shout to the Lord. What would come out of that room from eight kids would probably drown this room. If I went to that room, we'd lose hands down. Because they'll just do it for the fun of it. So David says, hey, God, I find myself here. I'm betrayed. I'm alone. People close to me have let me down. And yet, I am thirsty for, I want more of you. And I'm going to fill me with more of you till I am overflowing. Till I'm soaked. And then I'm going to give out a loud shout. Quite often we paint David as this really weird guy who sits around crying all the time and lamenting. But he's not. He's actually crying out saying, God, I love you. God, you're the best. God, you're awesome. Not to convince himself, but because he knows who God is. And as we come in around Psalm 63, as we travel into Psalm 63, as we travel out Psalm 63, my prayer is that we would have that same revelation based upon the reflection of David that we would be able to Give a loud shout in the middle of the desert because we were thirsty, because we drank, because we came, because we overflowed. And so I can sing, cry out, praise you, Jesus. So we're going to give it a chance because if you hadn't realized, this was quite a submersive, submersive, uh, yeah, submersive message, uh, immersive experience. So we're going to do that. We're going to shabak, praise God. Uh, this is my hobby horse. I always find it frustrating when a worship leader, not the worship leader, has to tell us to shabak praise when the Bible commands us to do it anyway. So when, when, when the worship leader has to do that, I'm going, well, we must suck. We don't actually understand. Cheryl's showing me time. Um, <laughs> all right, I'll finish. Um, we, we, we shouldn't. We should just be there because we were thirsty, because we drank. Because we were soaked, because we were filled with overflowing. So we're going to try that on three. We're going to yell, praise Jesus. We're going to see what it sounds like. They could. Now, I'm not going to yell loud as I have a microphone. That's my excuse. But what's yours? Anyway, anyway here we go. One, two, three. Praise Jesus. Oh, good Lord. You yell more for the Broncos losing than that. Let's try this again. One, two, three. And David does this as he lays there in the desert. He is filled with wonder of God. Two more points and then I'll wrap. Number six, he says, I pursue with passion, I pursue. If you look at, I always love looking at the, the, the Paleo-Hebrew pictures. It's actually the picture of a door a picture of a floor tent plan, and a picture of the sun on the horizon. And it literally means moving in condensed time. It literally says, hey, when, he, when David says, I, with passion I pursue and cling to you, the Hebrew word says, I will move close with you. I will move in time with you. My pursuit of you, God, is literally that I'm here, right here with you. I know this is awkward for Josh. Um, right here, that's where I'm going to be. That there's nothing. You'll see the next line is going to actually get even a little bit more intimate, Josh. Um, but, it, but David writes and he says, "Hey, because I thirst, because I drink, because I come, because I overflow, because I sing, I will pursue you at your speed." Man, that was challenging when I read that, and I'm going, 
good Lord, I know that I have a high capacity to run really fast and people can't keep up with me. Man, I can't keep up with God some days. Because he's way out there and I'm dragging my feet back here. And the last one says, because I feel your grip on my life, I keep my soul close to your heart. That keep, make Josh really uncomfortable, you can stand, but it'll make it easier, literally is like that, is that there is nothing between. God, I, I choose to keep my soul close, so close to you. We have a, thank you, Josh, we have a grandson that touches his love language. And to him, it's skin on skin. So if he comes and sits next to you, the one grandson is kind of like the one that will sit on the couch and go, I love you from a distance. The other grandson literally will be like that. It'll be, I love you. And he'll be rubbing you and touching you. He, he wants to know that there is nothing between. David says, God, no matter where I find myself, God, no matter what position I am in, because I thirst, because I drink, because I come, because I overflow, because I sing, and because I pursue you so close, literally I am there with you. That's where David finds himself in this psalm. And so in a dry and desert place, in a weary place, David encourages us to participate with him. If I could have the band up. Let us thirst like David thirsted. Let us drink like David drank. Let us come near to God like David did. Let us overflow like David did. Let us sing like David did. Let us pursue like David did. And let us keep ourselves close to the heart of God like David did. So I've shared my story. I've shared David's story. What's your story? I don't know where each of you are at. I'm not aware of your story. However, there is a God who does. Who is very familiar with every part of your story. And He's here. And He's there beside you in your bed at night. And as you wander and as you worry, He hears your cry. He heard a 13-year-old boy's cry. He heard 19 years later, an, old man, an older man's cry. He still hears my cry, my declaration. And like God broke through for David and has broken through for me and broken through for many of us, He will continue to break through for all of us. David knew this. I know this. You know this. We know this. And as we reflect this Lent on this psalm, let us remind each other of our ever-faithful God who loved us first, who pursued us relentlessly, and who cares for us unashamedly. Let us reflect on our relationship with Him and take the necessary steps to revitalize our intimacy with Him. Just where you are, Borrowed prayers. Thank you, Sharon. I'm going to say a line, and then I would like everyone else to say the other three. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land, 
where there is no water. We have the emblems. And I'd like you just to, while the music's playing, when you're ready, his body broken unto death, his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, a remembrance that we're told to do until he comes again. Remembering the promise he made. And as we reflect, no matter what your or my situation, the completed work of the cross is there for you and me to step into, to step through, and to step beyond. So eat and drink as you're ready, and then we'll make a declaration.